Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. And we are live for the Australian Investors Podcast Two Cents episode. Drew Meredith, how you going, mate? Pretty good. Another yeah. busy week. Another busy week. You look exhausted. I might say. Nearly, nearly, nearly silly season. <laughs> nearly, <laughs> like every Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. I'm a father of two. Well, this is true. Um, so you, we're recording this. Uh, I'm in Sydney, you're in the Melbourne office, um, and we're, we're streaming it to Twitter because I couldn't figure out what I was doing. So um, just thought, why not just we'll send it to Twitter. Because um, it's smart. It's smart. smart. Very smart. Today, I'm just watching you on Twitter as we speak. But anyway, um, we, we, we are... <laughs> this is probably the most time I've ever spent on Twitter in my entire life. Um, today, we're talking about the uh, Andrew Derrimuth ETF that is coming soon. Um, bonds equal good for 2023. Is modern monetary theory dead? And a few other things that we've been working on. But uh, we're going to keep it a bit light and a bit punchy this week, this weekend because you and I have been uh, planning for a bunch of different things and we've been busy. So... I'm just going to get straight in with the questions. And as always, if you send us a question, um, just remember that we are trying to get the funny question names in there. So I, I can see a few there this week. Uh, we will award someone an award, which is a $499 pass to our value investor program on Rask Education. All you've got to do is just send me an email uh, to say, hey, I asked that question uh, via the, the link on the Rask websites and, and you're good to go. Actually, before we get to the questions, mate, let's just give a quick check in, a bit of pulse check. Um, what, have you been, what have you been doing? What have you been working on? I was trying to work that out before we got on this call. Some weeks are a bit of a can be a bit of a blackout sometimes. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's kind of a lot of work's been done this year. A lot of changes. We've done a lot with portfolios, um, and at the moment, it's almost more reading and prepping for next year and and any big plans that we have. But um, I mean, keeping an eye on property market, residential property. Probably it's been bull. going. Yeah, you're a bull. Oh, you are, aren't you? Not yet. Oh. It's a, Challenge, you know, challenging at the moment. Um, there's something like I think the latest monthly results were capital cities down 1.1% for the month, and then mm. people would go, "Well, that's 12% for a year if you extrapolate it over every month." Um, but there's some. You know, Brisbane's down more than 8% since July. The average house in Brisbane 
which is pretty swift fall. And I thought, well, how do you how does that compare to the, the share market? The share market's actually up ten percent hmm. since July as well, or the ISX is anyway. And it kind of re- reminds you that equity markets are forward looking, but property is kind of driven by almost almost solely interest rates at the moment. So it's mm. that unique thing where equity markets start the pricing and a better outlook and uh, property markets are doing the opposite. Mm. You're a um, homeowner as well, aren't you? Nah. Uh, don't worry about that. <laughs> a multiple so, property, your property. Uh, tycoon. 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 Well. <laughs> I've got one, so that, that's enough. Um, no, but yeah, have you ever seen anyone annualise uh, property price time. falls. Yeah. <laughs> like, do you know how you said like 1% in one month is 12% in 12 months? That's a 12% months. rate. <laughs> well, I, mean, prop- I mean, it was 2% oh in gosh. Brisbane. So that's 24% annual rate. Oh, four. numbers. Yeah. Like, <laughs> quick math. No, like, because <laughs> I, I saw this the other day and some fundy who shall rename nameless does a hybrid fund in Australia <laughs> said, said that. Um, <laughs> Said that to say price, I'm quoting, I just won't quote it. <laughs> property prices are falling at twenty percent annualized based on this month. And I'm like, what? Like it so could the, go up next month. US like, does it some GDP figures are done by the same way. Where uh-huh. they just annualize the quarterly rate, which seems crazy when you think about it. Yeah, right. Well, I guess anything that gets a headline and some Twitter followers will work. Um, <laughs> next time we're talking about Bitcoin. So um, so what Definitely. else have you been working? What else have you been working on, mate? Other than property, like sounds quite interesting. Uh, fixed fixed income. No, we're pretty boring in here. So I think you remember we don't have the little buttons on this uh, buttons, podcast. Where yeah. <laughs> I called for rates to be cut last year, so we had another rate hike this week, twenty five basis points. Does that mean it needs to fall more than that next year? So it no, need to be cut, it's cut not twice. A, it's not a net position. It's a gross position. <laughs> okay, right. Any fall in interest rates? Got it. Got it. <laughs> Uh, but then I've been read like a few of the articles and speakers coming out now are, are talking about fixed income being the buy of 2023. So mm. I know you've been wary of duration this year. Uh, we we didn't go heavy duration, but we added you know long dura- long term fixed rate bonds about six months ago. Um, Short term, the timing's been reasonably good. You're never going to pick the bottom, but a lot of asset allocators and people building diversified portfolios are now thinking fixed income. Traditional bonds, quality, high quality bonds, investment grade are, are attractive again, uh, mainly because you know if you you can get a term deposit at four, you get U.S. Australian government bonds at three and a half, mm. uh, so slowly becoming relevant again. And then I guess people are hoping there. We saw positive correlation between equity and bond markets this year, which is quite rare. Um, and people are hoping we're getting to a point where maybe that negative correlation returns, which means if bond mar- bond markets fall, equity markets will increase. Yeah, the, there's actually this is actually a good question, um, which we'll just bring in here. And this comes from wounded ETF investor. Wounded ETF investor is probably the most politically correct name we've uh, been sent this week. It says, will the price of bond fund ETFs like RCB, which is the Russell Bond uh, bond ETF, I believe, will it recover as interest rates fall and or bonds held to mature are replaced with higher yielding issues? And the answer is yes. I mean, yes, I'll just check out the duration on this portfolio. But, well, it may um, never get back to the same price. Like, There's no guarantee that it does no. that, is there? No, but you get distributions as well. So in total return terms, yep. it should flow through. Yeah, but you may not ever get the dollar that you paid back in terms of capital value. Well, yes, but the the bond will the bonds will eventually cycle out. So yep. you'll eventually have 
the portfolio yielding more, which then becomes a more valuable portfolio overall. So I'm just yep. looking, um, it's 271 mil in this fund. The effective duration is 2.88 years. So this is the uh, Russell Investments Australian Select Corporate Bond ETF. Um, with a duration of 2.88 years and a yield to maturity of 4.5%, it's also already pretty meaty on there. Um, like neither Drew or I are going to say what it's going to do, like if it's ever going to get back to a certain price. But uh, over three years, negative return, total return of 0.4%. Um, over two years, negative 2.7%. Um, yeah, I mean, the hate, what would you say to this? The heydays for um, for that, you know, exorbitant pricing on bonds is probably... Yeah, it's probably behind us for now. You never know what's in the run there around the corner. And I think because it's corporate bonds, you would have had two things happening. You would have had, you know, interest rates going up, impacting on the broad yeah, value. True. But you also saw credit spreads blow out. So like the the risk, the additional risk that uh, investors assess on CBA versus the Australian government, if they assess higher risk at a period at a certain point of time, well, the bonds will fall in value to represent that. So there's a chance that the credit spreads come back in and narrow again if there's strong economic conditions, which might offset some of that. Um, but I think it's why you, if you're going, if you're investing long term, you just want to keep investing into this as part of your SAA anyway, mm. rather than um, be worried about whether your current position will recover completely. The kind of the benefit of dollar cost. Yeah, true. Um, that's a great question, and it's a good topic. Um, have you been working on anything else? So you got your property, you got bonds. It's really interesting, interest rate driven here. I'm a bull on a few things. You know this. Yeah. What else are we bullish on? China. Ch- oh, yeah. well, I'll just I'll just leave out the door. <laughs> so they dropped COVID testing this week. It's pretty oh, did quiet. They really? Yeah. From public places, apparently, and I was—we do a monthly update for Waddle, unconventional mm. wisdom, for some reason. It's called <laughs> unconventional, uh, and the Hang Seng was up twenty-six percent in November, which I didn't quite realise until oh, I wow. opened that. So, I mean, it's coming off a very low base, but you're seeing this swift reopening and um, improvement in China at the moment. So, we we met. Uh, have you met Andrew Swan from GLG? No. We met him. I had a quick chat with him this week, and he was talking about he's almost uh, been wary of allocating this year and last year into direct into new money into into China, and is saying that what you're looking at at the moment is finally some release and positivity because the economy there is hasn't had the inflationary issues of everywhere else in the world. Uh, currency, the US dollar has been incredibly strong. Regulation is starting to reverse. The central bank starting to cut rates. Property market's been calmed down a bit, uh, and consumer spending still. It's like all these potential tailwinds are now coming at the same time when the rest of the world's slowing. So it's kind of mm. uh, is it's still in a very uncomfortable investment to make, um, but it it's got all the hallmarks of something that looks attractive. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, interesting. Um... <laughs> Don't yeah. like China. Ah, <laughs> oh, but happy of it is very small part of a portfolio. Um, I think over, I'm a pretty optimistic person overall, and I think if you tune out some of the news, then like some of the biased news sources, it's pretty easy to take a bullish stance on China. You just, you just never know. Like, you get a lot of uplift, I believe, in equity markets over the long term through, I guess the the continued innovation and the like we've talked about it before, property rights and just the general, I guess, uh, focus on innovation as a society. And I think 
you don't, it's all about like the, the, I guess the unit of risk that you take for a return in my opinion. And how much yep. risk do you take? Like the, 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 the number one question is like, what, how, how do you weight geopolitical risk? So I guess maybe a question for you then is like, how, how much, how much is too much EM in a portfolio? Because I've seen, we've spoken about this on there before with, with some, uh, with, 25, 30% EM and 5% other global equity, which is... I think I thought you were going to say, how do you weigh geopolitical risk? And that was, oh, yeah. And how do you price that? And I was going to say, well, the, the Victorian government's trying to nationalise energy anyway, so there's geopolitical risk here too. Uh, I think naturally uh, it is higher risk and it's going to be more volatile. All the, the Atchison consultant guys, every time they do an analysis on forecast returns, valuation and growth emerging markets stand out as the best potential source, obviously with greater volatility. Uh, I don't think you'd ever do more than within a domestic, within a global equity allocation, any more than say a quarter, like it's probably below that, but maximum would be a quarter. So you'd have 75% in developed markets and 25 in, in emerging. Hmm, that fair is, enough. is China even an emerging market anymore? You know, second biggest economy in the world. Um, yeah. I'm confusing myself now. <laughs> I think it's emerging because of those property, you know, the property rights and the regulatory situation. Yeah. And, uh, um, but there's a lot of tailwinds. We've been allocating there recently, probably too early. Um, but as part of a balanced portfolio, I think it makes sense. Well, I, you know, think about innovation. You look 10 years ahead from now um, and we think a lot of the growth is going to come from Asia, whether that's not just China, but Indonesia, mm. Taiwan, a lot of these other a lot of these other places, and I tend to agree with you. I just, um, I just, I just would encourage people to be just mindful of the, the increased volatility uh, and position it accordingly. Which is why, thanks for sharing like the the breakdown of how you think about allocating to it. Um, it's been a pretty like it's been a pretty wild year. Like just to illustrate, you know, basically the benchmark for emerging markets down around thirteen percent. So that's to the end of November. Yeah. Uh, so so. Um, it's just Chinese markets down further too. Yeah. So just keep in mind like that volatility that comes with the terrain. Um, in terms of, you know, what's been going on behind the scenes with me, I'm obviously here on the road in Sydney. We've been doing a lot of interviews. We had, um, I did a podcast with Nikki Shavak from uh, Blackbird Ventures this week, um, which is probably like a, a super highlight from the trip, probably Australia's leading venture capitalist uh, and had a bunch of other great conversations as well. Like I you know, spoke to, um, Tom Milner, um, son of Rob Milner and the, the Solpats f- uh, family. Um, we spoke about coal stocks and the opportunity for energy, uh, even not just, you know, beyond 2022 and into 2023. But, yeah, it's really good, Drew, actually. It's, it's funny because we're recording this on Thursday, the 8th of December. It's 2.30 p.m. And um, <clears throat> we've got the RASC event tomorrow night. I'm trying to just, like, <laughs> string that together. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so is, this your, is this your first live event uh, of we this do- scale? No, we, we actually did. We actually sold. We actually sold air quotes about three hundred and fifty tickets in four days for a Melbourne event before COVID. Um, but you never ran it. Yeah, we ran it, and we got one hundred and forty people in the room. And thank heavens we did, because that could only hold one hundred and twenty. <laughs> so, so thanks, thank you for everyone that did not rock up. But I've got a feeling like there's people sending like so many emails today saying, hey, have you got tickets? Hey, have you got tickets? Hey, have you got tickets? And please, we do not have any more tickets. They sold out like a week or so ago. But the we do have a live stream option, uh, which is available. Um, that is on the RASC YouTube channel. So you can just get, you can just get it there, like live stream. Um, 
There will be an after party somewhere in Melbourne too. Uh, so. East Driver Lane, probably. Oh, jeez. Sounds. I thought that's a pretty good bar, but um, and Andrew Derrimuth frequents. <laughs> Andrew Derrimuth frequents beneath Driver Lane. I'm told. Yeah. Um, but mate, that's that's basically the week that's been. Um, I. I'd love to dig into some of these questions uh, ahead of because we're not we, we are both presenting at the Rask event tomorrow night, and I doubt we're going to be able to be functional beyond after the event enough to then publish the the regular episode at seven a.m. on Saturday morning. So um, there are some been some great questions that have come through, and I'll give everyone the PC version. And here is here is the first question. It comes from. Muriel Fan. So <laughs> Muriel Fan writes in. Hi, Daniel. Is this perhaps a great time to buy an investment property? Prices are down, rent is increasing, the interest rates are variable and sure to go back down. Uh, rent seems sticky. If you can if you can weather the relatively high interest rates in the short term, you should theoretically come out the other end in a pretty positively geared property once interest rates go back down, question mark. True. You're the property guy. So one thing I don't claim to be an, I'm not an expert in anything. Uh, the, the one thing I claim not to be able to predict, uh, I just highlight the fact that great was in capital letters, as in like an incredibly good time uh, to buy property at the moment. I think if you look forward 10 or 20 years, what's happening at the moment is only going to exacerbate what is a shortage of, you know, livable and quality property. That's kind of clear everywhere you look at the moment. Um and, and what you're seeing was probably COVID and real incredibly low interest rates sent prices beyond where they ever should have been by about, sounds like, 15 to 20%. And that 15 to 20% is coming off. Um, I can, I'd never say it's a great time. Um, <laughs> but it's better than it was two years, 12 months ago. You know, I think that, would that be the best way to explain it? Um, well, I think so. If you're a buyer yeah. and you just look at the prices, it's probably the best time. But I would also say I've heard – I just heard it again today from a financial advisor I was chatting to um, and a mate uh, that I caught up with the other week. I was buying a property and the borrowing capacity, their borrowing capacity has reduced by 25% in nine months. Yeah. So even though prices may be down 10 or 20% in some areas, um, the borrowing capacity is what drives a lot of it because it's such a highly geared asset. So for a lot of people – buying a house now is just actually out of the question that might change next year when interest rates stabilize and forward rates maybe come down a little bit uh but the thing to keep in mind too is that early i have this sense and i don't have any data to back this up but i have a sense that in early periods of uncertainty like now when owners are very concerned and investors are very concerned about what could be i have this sense that the lower quality properties are typically the ones that come to market first. So yeah. what I would suggest is that maybe those people that have put off buying, maybe they do get their opportunity to buy better quality assets next year. Um, obviously, it's speculation. If you're buying it for a lifestyle asset, you'd probably just want to buy it anyway. Um, but I, I guess that's probably where the dice would fall for me. Um, yeah, but yeah, rent, I would agree that rent seems it's easier to copper rent increase than it is to negotiate down um, when supply and demand is so out of balance. They're going up because repayments are going up. I assume that's why rent's going up more generally. And this is what But also just about. availability. Also just yeah. availability. Shortage yeah. and and the costs are going up. So uh, rent's going up. Um, hmm. I was going to... I think one of the... Yeah, one of the big things people need to 
think about at the moment is this maturity wall that's still coming. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard some figures in Canada that something there's something they're similar to Australia that'd be like 30% or more of properties have got a massive maturity wall coming where your low, your incredibly, you know, under 2% fixed rate mortgage expires and a lot of them are going to be early and middle next year. It's that point where, you, where your interest rate, where your repayment might be tripling for some people, like double or triple. Mm. Uh, that's when the real pressure comes and the, and the forced decision to do something. Because at the moment, <clears throat> around where I am, uh, I've seen quite a few houses go for sale, but not sell at auction, which tells you the seller, sellers are still expecting a price that's too high and the buyers aren't either don't have the capacity to buy it yet. So you need that seller to shift their expectations before... I think it'll be a great, in you know, capital letters time to buy. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, so just keep shoveling that money away. I think the saving, the national savings rate has started to slow. Um, so that's something that people will be mindful of too. Is like people will start to feel the pinch sooner rather than later, and you'll see that savings rate, which was at almost record levels, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe at record levels during COVID. So um, that basically is people's cash buffer, and as that comes down, people begin to worry a bit more. Unfortunately, but that's just the reality. So, um, and like you said, I think you said this last week on the show, mate, you said that like some, a lot of homeowners and maybe some many investors would now be in negative equity. So um, yep. you'll probably see a bit more of that happen quicker than you expect. It's a mental um, challenge of negative equity, not necessarily the financial one. Yeah. There's actually a, um, a question that also come through and it's related to this. I'll just jump to it, which is from Lemoncello. Uh, it's basically just comparing Australians that have short-term just- variable mortgages. Spelled incorrectly. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> just highlight that. Um, while, <laughs> while Americans typically have those super long duration or long maturity mortgages, like 20 or 30 year mortgages. Um, so I guess the question is like, do you like does do you think this helps curve inflation and the impacts of interest rates? Like both both have their advantages and disadvantages. The regular Australian would probably feel the interest rate hikes more than the average American, uh, but ultimately maybe brings inflation down quicker. I think interest rates are a bad tool to fight inflation when it's driven by the supply side. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, I think we'll... What well, doesn't solve do, energy uh, prices, yeah. does it? Need exactly. more gas. We need more doesn't gas. Doesn't get you more truck drivers. Doesn't we get you more. Gas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a massive question, and it tells you the huge difference and why the RBA has already slowed down interest rate hikes. Mm. Uh, though I think people were expecting four percent. They're going to. They're at three point one. I'd be surprised if they go much further next year. But it hits. I've got my mortgage repayments have gone up significantly. I think two point eight, two point nine percent to like four point nine for my mortgage yeah. incredibly quickly, and you feel it. You your repayments have gone up automatically, um, and it has a and it has a big initial impact on spending. It probably hasn't flown, floated through all the way yet. And if you've got an offset balance, you probably ignore it a bit until you see it stagnate for a while. Uh, but it has a much, where interest rates are much more impactful on the economy. And if you think you're trying to create demand destruction to fight inflation, then yes, it's a better tool in Australia. That's why the US rates have had to go up significantly higher. Mm. Yeah, and... Um- yeah, I mean, we could go on all day about uh, interest rates. So why don't we? Um, Kentucky, <laughs> Kentucky Bankman Fried writes in and says, is MMT now DOA? Question mark. Let me just unpack that jargon. Is modern monetary theory now dead on arrival? Like if there's another pandemic uh, slash crazy shock in the future, will governments just quantitatively ease their way out of it? Or do you think they'd be too worried about causing inflation like this again? 
So you've got to be clear that governments don't quantitatively ease. Yeah, governments control banks. fiscal policy and central banks control monetary policy. And what happened in uh, the US and Australia was the government taking on massive, announcing massive fiscal policy and funding that by issuing bonds. And then the central bank was essentially the buyer of last resort of those bonds. So it's going nowhere. MMT still exists. Uh, it's essentially, and it's being implemented by so many countries around the world, they just don't like to call it MMT. Essentially, the the objective of it is to maximise employment as much as possible. Mm. Um, and inflation may be an outcome of that. So how do you deal with inflation? MMT suggests raising taxes. Um, traditional theory says increase interest rates. So both ways you're kind of screwing the consumer <laughs> in some way. I know if you, your cost of everything is going up, you're taxing them in one way or another. Uh, so I, I think and the, there's too much political risk of letting – we saw what happened in Europe for over a decade. There's too much political risk of trying to implement austerity measures during a recession that turns it into a depression and the kind of, uh, you know, that the impact that has on inequality and the impact that has on populations, stability of government, all those sort of things become relevant. Like you've seen, you know, what is it, 15% unemployment of young people in Europe for an extended period of time. So I think governments and central banks will continually provide, essentially try to, uh, what's the word, smooth the economic cycle via quantitative easing and fiscal policy. Yeah, and this is the thing, like, <clears throat> it's important not? to un understand who does what, like you said, like taxes and all that is controlled by the government and the <clears throat> printing of money is central banks. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the thing is we probably, it's only with hindsight that we had this once in a hundred year pandemic that we realised maybe putting interest rates so low during COVID was maybe had consequences like we're seeing now. Um, but the reality is, like, we can't control everything just with interest rates. I think that's what the world's worked out. If we if we want to smooth the cycle, we need to we need to have other measures and fiscal policy needs to do more. Yeah, exactly. So, and that with you know four year terms for government, that maybe isn't their priority all the time. So, hence the need for MMT like. Uh, scenarios um so yeah good 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 question kentucky bankman fried we've actually covered this before a few times on the show uh mmt is very topical um i guess the the, the next question um don't worry about the old boy all one word <laughs> says why why is does no service exist that allows anyone to create an etf <laughs> like why should andrew derrimuth not be able to have his own etf long zip plus gold short dubbo or whatever <laughs> and, and other people could buy it if they wanted to. How fun would that be? Question mark. Um, I can go. Well, so it's not you cheap. Go. To, you, you've not, been looking into it. Yeah. 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 It's not cheap to um, create your own ETF. So it costs a lot. You basically have to have an existing managed fund, which could be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars to create. You have to pass d maybe a dozen legal hurdles. Um, and then you have to get onto the ASX, which also is more legal hurdles and costs associated with that. And you have to create a product that then finally people want. Um, so there are numerous, numerous issues with that in Australia. Uh, the regulatory environment is very stringent. And so everyone could do it in theory, like anyone who has the money and the will and the strategy and the brand to distribute something like this can do it. It's just 
it costs a lot of money. You have to sit in the market where there's other things that people can invest in and um, you have to do it really well. So if you if you have the capability, you can do it. Um, there are other ways. Like say with Drew's financial planning business, he doesn't need an ETF to help you invest. If you go to Drew and you have a million bucks or two million bucks or whatever and you want to invest in super or outside of super, Drew and the team can do that. Um, so ETFs aren't the only thing in town, but they are definitely growing and I would just say that it's expensive and that's why typically it's pursued by only those who have the means to do one. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting in this space. Watch this space. I think you talked about needing a certain minimum viable amount of assets in it to warrant oh, yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, because you'd need, you'd need, depending on how, like say if you, if you had uh, $300 million right, uh, in the fund, that's probably what you'd want to have a standalone ETF that is a very low fee ETF, like a very yeah. low fee ETF. So you need to get, you need to be confident that you can get $300 million of assets into your ETF really quickly. Um, and if you look at a lot of the ETFs in Australia, they don't reach that. That's why they have higher fees to make sure that they can be self-sufficient. So um, that's something to be very mindful of. And who knows, maybe we do see the uh, the Andrew Derrimuth ETF um, ticker symbol Drew uh, in the future. Maybe, maybe. When if you if you did, but what would happen, Drew? What would happen if you did go long zip and gold and then short dubba? Like, what would actually happen? Uh, probably be retired. Depends <laughs> 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 at what point. Zip has been up pretty strongly. Has it? Dubba's down. Gold's up. Yeah. If you had just good idea, percent gold maybe. So you can, but you, the answer is you can. You just you're just going to lose money when you do it. Anyone can. You don't need AFSL to create one because normally, uh, do you need AFSL? You just outsource it, so there'd be a yeah, responsibility. Yeah. yeah. So you don't. You you can create one, but it's expensive. It's um, super super expensive. So and, like, and naturally, it'd be. I couldn't, as an advisor, recommend my own. Yeah, that's and that's another thing, right? So say if Drew and I wanted to start the the Rask ETF, it's if, if Drew and I are in business together, it's really hard for then Drew to say, hey, go and check out the ETF that we run, by the way, because you get that whole conflicted remuneration and that type of stuff, which um, is obviously a bygone thing and there's regulation that's come in to stop a lot of that. Um, but, you know, just in terms of what you would actually have to do, you'd obviously have to operate, you know, it would have to operate under someone's AFSL. Um, you have to be very careful about what you said. You need a PDS and a TMD, which are two legal documents. You need your whole company to be audited. You need to make sure that the people that are acting and designing strategy have investment committees. There are multiple directors. Like it goes on and on and on. It's not just as simple as here's a strategy, let's put it on the ASX. That's why not a lot of people do it. That's why it's typically reserved for the, the, the big dogs. Um, there was another great question that come through. Um, on the uh, double down and buy the zip Joke's, joke's face with a smiling emoji. <laughs> Dubba down and buy the zip. I'm like, Dubba and zip are going to hate us. Um, so considering Australia's emissions reduction target for 2050, how do you think this will affect Australia's ASX mining companies from coal to oil and gas to lithium? <laughs> well, that was one for me. <laughs> aren't, you like a, aren't you like full ESG these days? Yeah, I mean, we... Internally, we just we won't invest in a coal company or a gambling company. Um, and if they kind of pop up into funds that we're managing, we'll get ideas about how we can get rid of them or 
think about getting rid of the fund. Um, that doesn't mean coal, obviously coal and oil and gas still have to exist and they're still incredibly important to the electricity system. So um, you saw a lot with Origin and AGL this week. So Origin, mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago, AGL basically has refused to change much and had you know, active investors and ended up uh, losing control of the board to, I think, Mike Cannon-Brooks. Um, and now it'll probably demerge at some point, whereas mm-hmm. Origin got a bid to buy the whole company because they'd been investing so heavily into renewables and kind of looking beyond their own coal-fired power stations. So I think it depends. is <laughs> probably what always comes up. But there's a lot of capital for companies in coal and other mining companies that are embracing net zero or are mm-hmm. actually really trying to transition their business. Um, as in, are they are they looking to replace their old coal fire stations with gas or in, in you know increasing investment in renewables are they uh, lithium and other companies are they transitioning like trucks to electric are they uh, what are they doing in their own businesses and they're committed to reducing emissions that way so um, i think there'll be just a massive divergence between those that are really transitioning and those that are just commodities dig it up ship it out yeah um, agreed uh, when i was chatting to tom this week um, who is one of Australia? Whose family is one of Australia's biggest coal and everything? <laughs> Sorry, Tom. <laughs> yes. No. no well, it, it's true. Like it's a public company. Like Solpats is a public company. He's a lovely guy. He's just a lovely guy. And his, you know, what he was basically saying to me. If I, I'm not taking the words out of his mouth, I'm just paraphrasing what I, how I interpreted it. Is um, just that you know Australia still has quite a way. To go in terms of our transition to renewable energy and so there's going to be this prolonged period where we find ways to produce you know cleaner coal and transition to renewable energy sources that are actually sustainable for our economy Um, and one of the things that I guess one of the interesting problems that happens to occur is these coal companies that we have because of really high prices are super profitable right now like incredibly yep. profitable, like more profitable than they've ever been in the history of their businesses. And they've got so much cash trading on a price earnings ratio of two times and they can't go and start another mine basically because there's so much political issue with that, right? Which is fair enough. And funding just, and banks, yeah. a lot of banks won't fund them. Yeah, so they've got all this cash but they don't really know what to do with it and they're still super profitable and they're growing. Um, and it's a really interesting thing. But what happens eventually, of course, something has to give. Like eventually something has to give. Um, and then in terms of lithium, the, the, I think one of the shames with lithium is that we still we are producing some of the highest quality lithium in the world. And even companies that are in Australia that have assets overseas are producing some of the highest quality lithium in the world. And yet all of that still goes to China to then be refined and sold. Um, so, so we have a potential as a, as a country to do that here. Um, so then there may be other ways to play the supply chain over time because at the moment, like we've got like Pilbara, um, Core Lithium, Vulcan, which is more of a German site, but it's here in Australia. Uh, there's plenty of these companies that um, have huge and wonderful assets, but they still, we're going to be relying on global markets to monetize those. So um really interesting space uh and there's also the other thing one like obviously we've spoken about this before is even like bhp's move for oz minerals right like that's not yeah. it wasn't mentioned in the question it's like copper right i was i was chatting to blair hannon from globalx this week and he's number one thematic of 2023's um 
It's actually yesterday I was chatting with him. Um, his number one thematic of 2023 is decarbonization. Yeah. And to produce the same amount of like, let's say like electric vehicle, you need multiple amount of copper versus a combustion engine. And so yeah. I think it was BHP is thinking that the, um, the world could be in a copper deficit by the end of 2020s. Um, yeah. And also that, um, you know, the, the current, um, so the COP27, the outcome of that was that we need four trillion US dollars of spending, four trillion US dollars of spending by 2030 to get us to net zero by 2050. So think about that amount of money. Think about it. Like that's a huge opportunity in multiple different businesses. So it's probably the defining theme of multiple decades to come. Um, and just wait for the legislation. So you saw Inflation Reduction Act in the US, which offered massive subsidies to all green. Yeah, there was a little bit of nuclear in there, but it's incredibly green renewables. And then even in the UK, they're talking about you know oil and gas, but all the money is going towards renewables, whether that's you know wind turbines or solar as mm. well, because they allow you to become more self-sufficient. You don't have to refine elsewhere. You don't uh, have to export product everywhere. Um, yeah. Um, there was two more questions here, which we might get to. This is a super technical one. So it's going to, this is Not more, I me. think this is, the, if I buy an ETF that is made up of 100% cash and a, or 100% bonds, do I pay capital gains tax when I sell it? If yes, why would I not just keep my cash in a high interest savings account? What benefits is there to cash or a bond in an ETF? Well, you still pay capital gains tax. I can tell you that. Yeah. And you also pay uh, tax on any distributions you get as well. But the unit um, price shouldn't change much. Yeah, that's it. So that's why when I talked about that Russell ETF before, even in a pretty bad environment, it was only down 2.7% per annum over two years. So that's in a very bad environment for the, those types of products. So, yeah, I mean, you would have been better off having your money in a term deposit in that time, but interest rates were also incredibly low. So keep that in mind. Um, High yield would, uh, cash accounts are also variable. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, I would just say right now you're probably better off um, if you can take, as Drew always says, the lowest amount of risk to get the required return. If that is in a savings account, that is a better option. Yeah, or a not TD. Just for yeah, uh, your return deposit. Yeah, not just for uh, tax reasons, just for any reasons. Um, take the lowest amount of risk you possibly can. And so there are certain instances when you do want to have your money in a bond ETF. That's when... Um, things go the other way, right? When bonds go up in value, the bond ETF goes up in value, um, whereas your cash account won't do that. In fact, the interest rates will just fall. So um, there is that. And then in certain environments, there are things called cash management trusts or CMTs, which often yield more than a savings account. Um, and the way they do that is they typically have like this one massive pool of cash that they put in a bank and then sprinkle a little bit of short-term treasury bonds or something like that in the mix so you can tweak the interest rate a little bit. And those used to be super popular as well. Um, but when interest rates got slammed, I don't think they're as popular anymore. But so there are reasons for that. Yeah, Most of them switched to uh, CMAs rather than CMTs because yeah. CMAs were government guaranteed. I think CMTs were, it's like a US money market account, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and the final question that we've got, Drew, is from the Rogue Traders. Now, this one, I wasn't sure if they were talking about a certain type of nightclub, but they said, <laughs> would love your thoughts on the golden butterfly portfolio asset allocation strategy. And I clicked on it, and I must admit, it was quite a long-winded kind of 
I guess, breakdown of the way this portfolio works. And it looks like it, I'll summarize it. There's a quote down the, the bottom, which basically says, the golden butterfly follows this philosophy. Invest in volatile, uncorrelated assets that cover every economic condition, and you'll do pretty well with limited downside, no matter what happens in the markets. Is there such a portfolio? <laughs> Um, but uh, I'm going to apologize in advance for if people who um, put this forward <laughs> reach out. But all I can see on this is charts that go back to 1972. Uh, and essentially, since the late 70s, interest rates have gone in one direction. It was from 17 or 18% to zero. So the the biggest takeaway was invest in volatile uncorrelated assets and you never lose. <laughs> uh helps when interest rates are falling over, essentially falling over that entire 40-year period. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would just say this. If there was one portfolio strategy for everything, for every condition, for every period, um, yeah, I mean, we probably wouldn't need to be talking about it so much. But, um, I mean, there probably are parts of that you can take out. I am a fan of keeping things simple, and it seems very simple from the asset allocation perspective of this golden butterfly. Um I've heard a few different ones over the years and some of them highly optimized, highly engineered. And then you look at the portfolio mix and you see it's just like back tested to like three years. Like there, I've been to some um, fund launches recently and they'll show you like a back test of the strategy. And it's at the exact moment, if you just don't pay attention to the axes, you don't realize it's the exact moment that it would have been the most favorable for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've just got to be so careful when it comes to these things. Like when was it tested? How long was it tested for? What conditions? Do those conditions look even remotely like the, what the future could be? I mean, if, if there was one solution, yeah, we just don't have that. Um, but maybe there's merit to some parts of it as well. So. And that's about it, True. We're at the end of the show. It's a bit of a shorter one this week, but we do have a lot to get to tomorrow night, Friday night, the Rask event. You can live stream it on the YouTube channel, um, so go and check that out. Please, we've got a heap of questions we haven't got to this week because we cut it off a bit a bit shorter. Um, if you can keep your questions PC in the sense of, like, profanity is okay for off-air, but... Um, Who put profanity in there? You, uh, oh, no, the next ones. You should see oh, some yeah. of oh, I mean, you should... You should see some of the next ones. Like, this is probably the most competitive. Um, oh, no, there's Philip's House Cleaner coming up. There's FTX got, got Swifty. I think that's a play. I think that's a, <laughs> I think, I think that's a play on Rick and Morty. Um, then we've got Warren Wood. We've got Elongated Musk. <laughs> uh, I'm looking was, forward to next week then. <laughs> wannabe was a buffet. Um what does this one say? So this one says, uh, okay. <laughs> I can't. I can't say What is it? I can't say Drew me like one of your... I can't French say French girl? The, the Titanic? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, drew, drew me like one of your French girls. <laughs> there's a... There's that. Yeah, there's Clearly that, someone yeah. of our vintage. When did the Titanic come out? Yeah, that's making the rounds on social media at the moment. Um, uh, anyway, with deep fakes with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Anyway, it's a whole thing. That's for next week, mate. But um, if you want to get in touch with Drew Meredith, you can rock up at the, the Rask event tomorrow night <laughs> with a ticket. Um, Andrew Derrimuth might even make an appearance. Um, hopefully, Jamie Nemsis, our, our business partner, rocks up to the event. He's been a bit unwell. But, Jamie, if you're watching, 
we'd love you to be there, mate. Um, so get around it. Um, and uh, if you want to reach out for Drew to Drew for financial planning, you can head to waddlepartners.com.au. Uh, it's Drew at waddlepartners.com.au. Uh, share it around, chuck it on Reddit and all those types of places because he's I'll be, email. I'll be updating my Twitter handle this week. <laughs> yeah, we're changing it from dmidi13, but watch this space. And as, of course, you can... Oh, we didn't actually. We didn't give the number one. The number one. Uh, uh, who's the winner for this week for the for the name? We have to give a name. I, my vote is. You, there's a few, I know who some of sent some of these questions, so I think you should do this one. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Don't worry about the old boy. <laughs> You'll love that don't, one. Don't worry about the old boy. If you wrote "Don't worry about the old boy" as your name, you are this week's winner of the Value Investor Program. Please send me an email via the Rask websites. And if you do have a question for next week, please find us on any of the Rask websites, uh, and then you'll see a bit that says "Ask me a question" in the menu. So, Drew Meredith, as always, mate, absolute pleasure. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.